What's going on, folks? You've stumbled across the Kingdom Driven Podcast. I'm Isaac. You guys already know me, unless this is your first time listening. But new on here, we've got my buddy Lucas Burton as a guest. Thanks for coming, bro. Thanks for having me, Isaac. So Lucas is actually working as a co-lead. You're a co-lead, correct? That's right, yep. On a project called Imago mm-hmm. with uh, P to C, so that's power to change for those of you guys that don't know. Yep. And uh, do, do I, I have all that right? correct yeah that's right okay sweet and uh and he's also living locally here with me in oakville slash burlington area and we serve together at our local church so uh he's doing some pretty cool stuff so i definitely wanted to get him on here um lucas you have anything that you want to tell anybody before we get going uh that will give them a better idea of who you are maybe education and stuff sure yeah yeah so i went to uh i guess maybe most relevant would be that i studied international development so politics and economics at the university of guelph and then i spent uh, three years at mcmaster divinity college doing a master's of divinity um after that i joined staff with power to change spent my first year living abroad in denmark helping them get a campus ministry off the ground in copenhagen and then came back to uh, start into this current position co-leading this imago project so uh, hopefully I can share a couple of things that would be insightful, but this is very much a learning process for me as well, and especially in the, the area of research. So a lot of, uh, I think maybe just like a conditional statement up front is that everything I'm about to say is what I've learned so far. My thoughts are, are still subject to change and development as we keep researching together. So, Yeah, let's at least maybe start by you explaining. We hear that word imago. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure nobody knows what the heck that means. Yeah, yeah. What 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 is Imago and what is the purpose of that project? Sure. Yeah. So Imago is a Latin word, and the, the title of the project actually comes from the the statement of the phrase Imago Dei, which means image of God. And uh, for Christians, that might be something that we're a little bit more familiar with. It comes from the first chapter of the book of Genesis, where in the creation account, uh, God dis- God is um, pictured as creating humanity in His image in the Imago Dei. And so the project that I'm working on right now has been titled Imago because it's a research project that's looking at the question, what does it mean to be human? And um, so the the project has as its intended aim, um, the goal is to connect topics in human identity, human purpose, human destiny uh, with the, the topic of the gospel. So what does something like gender or sexuality or race or technology, artificial intelligence, a lot of these pressing issues in our day, what do they have to do with this Christ- Christian story, the biblical story? What do they have to do with the gospel? It's cool, bro. So maybe we'll start it off here with our first question uh, based on the description of, of Imago. And I'm going to ask you why you think it's important for us to think about what it actually means to be human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because it's probably not one that comes up frequently in, in our day-to-day, at least not in those terms. Uh, it kind of has the ring of a very broad sort of philosophical question, probably not one that you, you ask your friend when you're catching up over coffee or something like that. Um, however, I do think it's a question that is deeply relevant for our everyday lives, firstly because it's, it's directly connected to a lot of other major and fundamental questions. So questions like, you know, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's the way to live a good life, both morally and as well as like a life that leads to flourishing? Kind of embedded in all of these questions is a fundamental concept of what it means to be human. And so thinking about that question has direct kind of relevance to other major issues and questions in life. The other thing I would say, too, is that 
beneath a lot of the uh, social topics and, and contemporary issues in our day is a fundamental understanding of what it means to be human as well. So, for example, um, whether it's uh, discussions about gender, about sexuality, uh, some of the topics I've mentioned before, race, things of that nature, these are all um, areas of human identity that come down to the way that we conceive of ourselves and the way that we think we, we ought to live as human beings. And so beneath any of those kind of areas of our human experience is a more fundamental question of what it means to be human in the first place. And then when you start thinking about major social issues that are often very controversial, uh, contentious in our day, whether it's questions about uh, abortion or euthanasia or increasingly uh, questions about the sort of the ethics and the implications of technology, um, things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, changes in genetic manipulation. Um, these are all issues that kind of have in the background a question about how do our engagement with these either types of technology or with these issues or practices, how do they affect our understanding of what it means to be human. I was reading a, an article just yesterday, actually, in the Washington Post. I have a quote from it here. Uh, the columnist is Kathleen Parker, and the article is titled, We Need a, Philos uh, a, <laughs> a Philosopher-President. Does Such a Candidate Exist? So she's writing in an American political context, talking about the, the need for a particular type of leader. And she's arguing that the kind of leader that uh, I guess the Western world and specifically the U.S. needs right now is the kind of leader that can help us grapple with these major existential questions. And uh, there's this particular part of her article that I thought was was very compelling. She says, technological advances have so overwhelmed us that we may be unable to process their ethical ramifications which have an increasing impact on our daily lives, from robots and artificial intelligence to synthetic biology. With advances in gene, in gene manipulation, we'll soon be creating improved humans, most likely without bothering to mate or, or you know, have regular human pregnancy. Uh, enough of who am I? The question now is, who are we as a species? At this particular time in history, we have to answer an exceedingly tough question. What does it mean to be human? So I think part of this is maybe research confirmation bias. I'm obviously looking a lot online to yeah, see yeah. who's who's speaking about this topic already. But more and more, I'm seeing people realize that this really is the question of the day. No, that's big, man. Does th this a little bit... Uh, I know we had some questions planned, but... Yeah, go ahead. Does AI actually scare you? Huh. You know, it's interesting because... I mean, my, my particular background or field isn't in technology, so any kind of learning that I'm doing in areas related to technology, and specifically artificial intelligence, is quite new to me. So uh, I'm trying to, to not jump on a bandwagon of either being freaked out, like the machines are going to take over, but also maybe not being so naive, naive as to think that there isn't maybe like a real concern to be had. Um, it's difficult to, to really, I think, ascertain that because you're just kind of reading at a popular level at this point. You have people like uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, uh, founder and president of, of Tesla, who would go as far as to say that artificial intelligence represents the greatest existential threat to humanity. And even though he's, he's quite involved in a technological field on the cutting edge of research and development, he's been lobbying members of government to really try to impose restrictions on even research and development in this area because he thinks it, it could be like really, really threatening to, to humanity down the line. Other people, I think, are of the, of the opinion that artificial intelligence isn't so much of a threat in part because we're, we're quite a ways out from a true like machines taking over kind of thing. But um, I think I kind of personally, I, I have this slightly nervous posture. Like there's a part of me that um, I don't know, maybe it starts even with something as simple as the smartphone. Like I think the, when I got my first smartphone several years ago and suddenly had like 
a reminders app. You know, that's not artificial intelligence by any mean. But just the fact that I was becoming dependent on a machine and something as simple as that, I realized like my memory started to be affected. I didn't have to remember things nearly as much. And so I almost slowly lacked the capacity to do so. So I think my concerns are more about as we intentionally uh, and, and willfully kind of concede more and more of our needs or our like decisions in life to artificial intelligence, how will that affect the way that we uh, the way that we live, the way we interact with one another, the way that we think about what it means to be human? So hard to say exactly. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man. I, uh, I'm i definitely not sure... Well, maybe by the end of this interview, I'll have a stance on it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say anything. Um, how can we answer the question, what it means to actually... What does it mean to be human? And, and maybe what are some possible approaches that we could take mm-hmm. in order to answer that based on where people might be coming from? Yeah. Yeah, you make a really good point, and that's the fact that there are going to be like a plethora of different approaches to this, um, and that's true even within particular like areas of, of study. So, you know, just for example, um, even before thinking about it at like at a research level, when you just ask people, you know, ask a friend or a family member, what do you think it means to be human? Uh, in my experience, most people have just reflected on their human experience, and so their answer is is reflective of something experiential. So people might say, you know, to be human is to to love. To be human is to create. It's to uh, maybe to suffer. Um, it's to have possibility or opportunity. Um, and I think all of those things can be can be very legitimate in many ways. I think all of those answers are trying to appeal to something that not just the individual person has experienced, but something that they've realized that probably everyone that they've encountered in some way or another has experienced. I think almost everyone can relate to, um, you know, something as fun, as fundamental as love or something as, as fundamental, even as suffering that, that part of our human experience is marked by suffering. And that's true for all people, even if it's true in different measure. Um, what's interesting too, is that when you, when you then take other approaches, so if you enter the fields of the natural sciences or even social sciences, a lot of the time there, the, the efforts to understanding what it means to be human, uh, come down to trying to differentiate humanity as a species from other species. So the question would become, you know, what makes human beings different from other animals? And uh, there are some people that have suggested it's things like our use of language um, or our use of, you know, language broadly speaking. So not just like verbal language, but just the use of symbols in general to communicate, to transmit truth and information. Um, other people would say that there's something physiological to it. The fact that we're upright, bipedal, you know, two legs, that kind of idea, not walking on all fours, that that has something to do with it. Um, many things within natural sciences come down to there being like substantial differences in human beings' cognitive abilities and how that then affects the way that they're able to live as as biological creatures in comparison to other animals. Um, so I think many of these approaches uh, are, are legitimate and are definitely insightful. Uh, I think my, my area of, of growing interest and, and specialty is within the branches of Christian theology. What does Christian theology have to say about what it means to be human? And uh, what's interesting is that when you begin to ask that question, even of Christian theology, you get a variety of different answers. Um, interpretive approaches have, have kind of varied over time uh, throughout church history. And a lot of that has to do with um, the way that people have read the Bible, the way that they've approached, particularly understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. So I think fundamentally, pretty much every Christian uh, and every branch of Christian theology would say that being human definitely starts with this idea of being made in the image of God. But um, then the question kind of becomes, okay, but what does that mean? So if to be human is to be made in the image of God, then what does it mean to be made in, in God's image? What is the image of God? Yeah, for sure. So, and and you might have kind of touched on some of this already, but just to be more specific, 
how would understanding what it means to be human and thinking about that actually impact your view on on the gospel itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, it's, I mean, the way that I like to think about it is, is this, and I'm kind of tilting my hand here, showing you some of my cards in this area, because I mentioned that there's different Christian approaches um, to this topic. Um, I think the approach that I'm most drawn to is is one of biblical theology. And so specifically, biblical theology wants to ask the question, how does an understanding of what it means to be human, how is that presented in Scripture, but then also developed in the context of the biblical story? So maybe just by contrast, before touching on that further, um, one approach in Christian theology to understanding the image of God that uh, has been very popular for, for centuries um, is what's sometimes called a structural or a substantialistic approach. And the structural approach basically tries to identify a particular part of the human being that that is the image of God. Um, and so for a long time, the, that particular part has been the rational human mind. So people have said the, the image of God is the fact or is the, is the rational human mind. So the fact that humanity possesses rationality is what makes it um, made in God's image. That that actual specific part of being human is what separates us from the animals. It's what makes us different. And uh, although I think rationality is really important, <laughs> obviously we're having this conversation, um, rationality is really important, and I think it's related to the image of God. Um, people have been wise to point out that when you try to identify any one part of the human being as being the image of God, you run into a problem when you maybe encounter a human being that doesn't possess that particular part. So specifically, when you try to label something like rationality or cognitive function as being the image of God, uh, what do we do with uh, a friend, brother, or sister, uh, Christian or otherwise, who lacks cognitive capacity, who lacks rationality for some reason or another, whether there's some form of disability or whatever it might be, does that person suddenly no longer bear God's image? And in fact, this has been problematic in church history because there have been times where even in Christian discourses, by defining the image of God as something like the rational human mind, um, it becomes very easy for people to try to say, if we can prove that a certain group of people, uh, maybe based on their gender or based on their skin color, don't possess rationality in the same way that another group does, then all of a sudden they don't possess the image of God in the same way. And then from there, it doesn't take very long for us to say that their fundamental dignity or value um, really isn't the same as another group of people. So that's a long way of kind of getting at what I was going to say, which is that my favorite approach to this particular question and favorite, not just because I enjoy it, but because I think it's most compelling, is to think about what the image of God means as it's traced throughout the biblical storyline. So just to kind of put this in perspective, if we were to start at the beginning of the story in the book of Genesis, what we find is that God creates this good and ordered world, you know, out of the waters of chaos, he brings forth this good ordered world, and it's, it's set up to be this temple in which he's going to dwell, and he's going to rule over the cosmos, and he's going to dwell with creation, with his creatures. And at the climax of God's work, you know, we read in Genesis chapter 1, that God decides to create humanity in his image. I'll just read here from Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is normally the starting point that people will kind of go to when thinking about what it means to be human biblically. 
And uh, like I said, there's a lot of different approaches to understanding the image of God. And the one that I'm most compelled by is thinking of uh, the image of God as being humanity's identity. So it's something far deeper than just a particular function that we play in creation or a particular capacity that we have, like rationality. It's actually the most basic thing about us. That At the, the fundamental level, our identity is to be uh, the creature that represents God in the world. And so what's really interesting is that when we read this in the context of Genesis, what we find is that God did not create humanity to just be sort of spectators on the side while he did these crazy works in creation and, and kind of continue to see the world into flourishing. God created humanity and invited humanity to partner with him. Um, one of my favorite theologians describes God as the working through humans in the world God. That from the very beginning, God establishes that the way he's going to accomplish his purposes through uh, for his purposes for creation is through his human image bearers. And we can see that even in this passage where immediately after creating humanity in his image, God then entrusts humanity with the task of ruling over the rest of creation. So there's this partnership that's taking place between God and between humanity. Humanity is meant to represent God in the world. They're meant to reflect his character. And they're also meant to rule the world on his behalf. And that idea of ruling is kind of further developed in, in the early chapters of Genesis. Really, it looks like stewarding. It looks like um, creating. It looks like taking the raw potential of creation and, and making other things, like taking the creation project somewhere. And um, that's something that is meant to unfold in the way that you know, we do all different things in our human experience, like make music or make food or make families and make communities. Like all these normal everyday parts of our human life are actually pictured in Genesis to be this really sacred thing and a part of God's plans and purposes for creation. What becomes, of course, challenging, though, is that in Genesis chapter three, we see that that all kind of falls apart when sin enters the picture. And what's interesting, you know, about the way that we think about sin in connection with the gospel is that I think sometimes our understanding of the gospel has a way of, of making it seem like sin is just doing bad things, you know, breaking the rules. And at one level, that's true. But fundamentally, the way that, that uh, sin is envisioned in Genesis 3 is something far deeper, far more um, significant than just a rule being broken. The idea is that humanity has been given this unique vocation, this unique calling to fulfill its identity as God's image by ruling over creation and, and being the creature through whom God is going to accomplish his purposes. But humanity is given a choice about how it is that we're going to fulfill that. Are we going to allow God to define good and evil? Uh, are we going to submit to his design for our lives? Or are we going to reach out and try to usurp God's authority and define good and evil on our own terms? And so the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve, you know, giving into the deceptive words of the serpent, is really a story about how humanity, um, much like Adam and Eve in that passage, consistently chooses to define good and evil on its own terms. And this is true in each of our lives, that each of us, by defining good and evil on our own terms, we reject God's design for our lives. We think that we know better. We want to live and pursue flourishing based on what we think is best. And as a result of doing that, we actually uh, end up separating ourselves from God and inviting brokenness into the world around us, including our own lives. So the, the rest of the story of the Bible is about how God is drawing back creation to a place of wholeness, and he's doing that by redeeming humanity. Because from the very beginning, humanity kind of sits at this intersection between heaven and earth. So whatever happens to humanity happens to the rest of creation. And so for God to, uh, to make creation whole once more, he has to do so by redeeming humanity. 
And, uh, you know, if we had more time, we could kind of trace that theme throughout the story. But if we kind of just fast forward, the whole story of the Old Testament is a story of God choosing a particular people through whom he's going to redeem all people. So the initial kind of uh, calling and mandate to um, to steward God's world and to be his representative in the world, his image, is passed on to all human beings. But after the fall, we, we fail in our ability to actually realize that identity. Uh, we're broken image bearers. We don't represent God rightly in the world. And so God sets out on this path to choose a particular human family and turn that family into a nation, the nation of Israel, that through that people, he would be able to restore human beings to their created purpose as his image bearer. And all of that comes to a climax in the person of Jesus. And this is why it's so significant to think about Jesus becoming a human being, because it's like after an entire story of how Israel is called to rightly image God in the world and yet fails consistently to do so, God's final act is to actually become a human being himself and become his own image in some sense. And so in the incarnation, the divine and human nature are made one in such a way that through Jesus's death and resurrection, not only can sin be atoned for, can death be destroyed and defeated, but broken human image bearers by becoming one with Jesus through faith can actually be restored to their image bearing potential, which means that forgiveness of sins, when we talk about that in the gospel, is not just a matter of God um, being willing to like overlook or forgive us for the wrong things that we've done. Forgiveness of sins is ultimately about God transforming us into full human beings, that we're becoming the humans that we're meant to be. And if you want to know what it looks like to be a full human being, you don't have to look any further than Jesus. And that's the, that's the remarkable thing about Christ himself is that he also, not only does he reveal who God is fully, but he also reveals what it means to be human. And I think in many ways, the whole New Testament story and the formation of the church around and in, in and through Jesus is the idea of this new humanity that God is creating anew in Christ. And this new humanity is, is not new in the sense that it's any better. I'm not in any way saying that Christians are inherently better or have more dignity than anybody else. But by virtue of being made one with Jesus, those who are um, united with him are in a process of being restored in their very humanness and restored to that image-bearing potential and, and purpose. That's huge, bro. That was uh, a really, really good explanation. A lot of value there. Um, last question. Yeah. What's the biggest lesson? Actually, maybe two two more questions, okay. but you can kind of compile them into one here. What's the biggest thing that you've learned that you didn't previously know since joining the Imago team? So would that be like a year and a half? Yeah, about a year and a half ago. Yeah. So yeah, in the last year and a half, uh, is there anything that you've learned or maybe even changed your uh point of view on or or your opinions on since starting this project and the second half to this is if there's anybody here listening who uh is trying to figure this out man like maybe they're going through um some kind of identity crisis Mm. or they're trying to figure out why am i here like where do i fit into this this world like there's a lot of people i know that will message and and dm me on instagram and just seeking prayer seeking whatever they can to help them find some kind of place uh, in, in this in this world that we live in, what would you say to them based on what you've been learning in the last year and a half and where would you kind of direct them to? Yeah, those are two really great questions. Um, I guess it's not really part A and B. Those are two totally they're two different separate questions. <laughs> they are two separate <laughs> questions, but they're both, they're both really good. Um, to your first question, which was maybe something new that I've learned. Um, oh man, it's, it's honestly hard to summarize. I think 
in many ways, sort of the seeds of, of this learning were kind of set when I was in seminary. A lot of the things that I was studying for classes and, and reading at the time gave me a bit of a foundation. But um, I think in many ways, it's not so much uh, new things so much as like a deepening of, of things that I had begun learning beforehand. So in particular, I think um, understanding at a deeper level the way that salvation is really not about God just uh, doing things to us, like forgiving us or giving us his grace in a way that's removed from Jesus, but that salvation is all about being made one with Jesus. So sometimes we like to talk about how when we trust in Christ, we get the benefits of grace and freedom and forgiveness and adoption and all these words, um, some more theological than others. And that's of course true, but I think something that I'm realizing in, in deeper and deeper ways is that the reason that we get all of those benefits is because we become one with Jesus. And it's only through union with him that we actually have access to all of those other things, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it in the context of the whole story of how God, through Jesus, has firmly and finally established a true image of himself in the world so that all the broken images uh, can become whole and and, um, be in a process of being transformed when they trust in him and are made one with him. Um, Which in some sense, I think, maybe does connect with your second point. Um, what I would say is this, we live in a really, especially for those of us who are maybe in like a Western or North American context, we live in a really confused uh, state of affairs right now. And um, I don't think it takes very long when you're watching the news or listening to radio or reading many, maybe, I don't know, magazines, papers, whatever it might be, um, to recognize that there's a lot of questions out there specifically on this topic of identity. And I think one of the largest and loudest kind of narratives in our culture right now Um, is one that says the most important thing in life is being your authentic self. And so there's this idea of this quest for authenticity that every person has to go on. And that quest involves looking deep within yourself and trying to discover your true inner self, your true identity. And uh, then once you discover that true inner self, you now have a responsibility to actualize that self in the world, to express it in, in different ways externally to kind of like uh, make it real in some respect. And in some sense, this, this idea has been seen and promoted as like a very freeing thing because it's like no one can tell you who you are. You know, you decide who you want to be. You have to look within yourself and then you get to be whoever you want to be or whoever you discover uh, yourself to be. Um, but when I take a step back and think about that narrative, to be honest, I find it not freeing, but in some sense um, overwhelming, even enslaving, because it basically says that there's this true version of me that's somewhere deep within me that nobody else can actually know or judge or like help me discover. I have to kind of discover it on my own. And then hopefully I discover it properly because the only way that I can really flourish and have a happy life is if I can discover this hidden authentic self and then properly express it in the world. And if I fail some way in doing that, then my happiness is at stake. And so for the people that are listening that are in a place of trying to wrestle through these kind of basic questions. Who am I? Where do I fit in? What's my purpose? What I would say is that the Christian story and the story of the Bible uh, provide not just a compelling answer, but an answer that's very different than our cultures. Um, And it seems in some sense ironic uh, given the, the way that our culture thinks about identity. But basically the answer it says is this, your identity is not something for you to determine or to discover on your own. It's something that God has revealed and has actually graciously given you as a gift. And that when you are able to to trust in the identity that he has given you and to lean into that identity, 
that that's actually the path towards flourishing. Um, I think, you know, one of the first things that someone needs to hear in, uh, in our culture today is that wherever they are right now, uh, whether Christian or otherwise, whatever they believe, whatever the circumstances of their life are, um, my conviction as a Christian is that the first thing that's true of them is that they are made in God's image, which means that they have dignity and value and beauty and purpose. And uh, I think the whole thrust of the Bible and the whole thrust of God's work in the world is to come and restore people to a full experience of that dignity, of that value, of that beauty. And the way that God has done so is through the person of Jesus. And so I think my encouragement to people would be uh, to look to Jesus and look to the work that, that he, through his life, death, and resurrection, has done in showing us what it means to be human. Um, and what's amazing is that that's not just a set of ideas. It's not just like a theology of propositions to think about. Jesus is actually inviting us to enter into a living story and to participate in the renewal of humanity, the renewal of our identities in and around him. And that's something that we're freely called to join him in. So cool, man. So, uh, yeah, I'm just so thankful that you came on and shared that with us. Yeah, um, so grateful to be here. Thank you. Where can people follow along in, in the sense of like they want to see more content about this? Um, they maybe want to know more about you. Where's the best place that they can find you on, on Instagram or whatever? Yeah, for sure. So my website is IamMultiplied.com. Instagram is at IAM underscore multiplied. So you can definitely follow along there. Those are my, my personal sites. There'll be more stuff, uh, Lord willing, that'll be coming out in probably the fall of 2019 uh, related directly to Imago. We've got some creative projects that are on the go right now. But um, I'm hoping to, uh, to continue publishing stuff on my own as well to kind of keep updates on the project things that are going on. And there's ways to get in touch with me, of course, through both of those channels as well if people have specific questions. Cool, 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 cool. All right, guys. Well, if you've listened this far, really appreciate it. I uh, I hope you got as much value as I did after uh, just hearing Lucas open up about what he's been researching and what God's been laying on his heart in terms of what it means to actually be human. Um, feel free to email us. Send us a DM on Instagram, as I always say. If you have any questions, furthermore questions, Go find Lucas where he just told you to. And, uh, yeah, just remember, guys, you're so loved. And uh, there, there's always a place for you, for you here. God loves you so much. Bye.